The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. Oh God, this is true. Your precious word is all of these things. I ask God that all of this would be more true, experientially more true in my life and in my brothers' and sisters' lives. Lord, I pray that if this psalm is read this time again next year, that our response would be a deeper and a more hearty amen than even now. And Lord, I pray that we would not just pray for this, but that we would take action toward this end and give ourselves increasingly to your word. For it is in tasting it, Lord, that its taste becomes ever more sweet to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And brothers and sisters, I ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. If you're new to reading the Bible, that's towards the end of the good book. Uh, if you get to Revelation, you've gone a bit too far, but it's, it's not very much left of Revelation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Here's what we're going to do today and next Sunday. We're taking time to spiritually reset and resolve as we look to 2022. So this Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to stoke the embers of our affections towards a greater engagement with God's word this year. And then next Sunday, we'll do the same with prayer. And so today, my hope, my prayer is to stir your affection for God's word through God's word. <laughs> I want you to look at 1 Peter 1. 22. Now, we are parachuting into a text, I know that, so let me just orient you to where we are so that you know the landing zone. Three sections to chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 is an eruption of praise for our salvation. 13 through 21 is a call to holiness because of our salvation. And then 22 starts a section on love. Now, why would I choose a passage about love when this is a sermon where I want to whet your appetite for God's word? Well, you're just going to have to pay attention, all right? 
Read with me 1 Peter 1, 22 through, verse, through 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. Grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and Envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. By it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. First thing I want you to see, number one, the goal of the gospel word is love from a pure heart. You might be helped if you used your outlines. You don't have to, but it may help you. First thing I want you to see, the goal of the gospel word is love from a pure heart. Just look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What's the command given here? What, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the bottom line? Love one another. The point of the verse is the command at the very end of the verse. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's what Peter wants us to do. Now, the stuff beforehand in this verse grounds this command. In other words, okay, we've got a command to love, but love on the basis of What? On the basis that love is the goal of our conversion to Christ. On the basis that love is the goal of our conversion to Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's conversion, for a sincere brotherly love. That for introduces a purpose clause. Love is the purpose of our conversion. Now, I just want to sit down for a minute. I'm just kidding. Metaphorically, I want to sit down for a minute. I just want to think about this. I want to think about conversion. And I want to think about the goal of conversion. Now, conversion, what does that even mean? Conversion. It means coming to Christ for salvation. When someone comes to Christ, they're converted. So they weren't a Christian, now they are a Christian. They were dead in trespasses and sins. Now they're alive in Christ. And I love what Peter says about conversion. When someone's converted, they're purified. Purified from the stain of sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You know why that song resonates? Because it's true. Sin had stained us through and through, but in conversion we are washed through and through like a garment we never thought would get clean, but lo and behold, tide pods, even on cold, did it. 
conversion for us in that God purifies us from the stain of sin that you never thought would get clean. We are purified from the stain of sin in conversion. And we're also purified from the shame of sin. Sin brings shame. Sin brings a feeling of, I want to cover this up. I don't want this to be seen. And so sin makes us want to hide from God. Why do you think Adam and Eve hid in the garden after they sinned? That's because they were ashamed. But in conversion, this is taken away. In conversion, we stop hiding because Christ has covered our shame with his blood on the cross. He purifies us from the shame of sin. And he purifies us also from the guilt of sin. So who likes feeling guilty here? Right? Just a show of hands. Who likes feeling guilty? Not me. I don't know of anybody who likes feeling guilty. And so what do we do? Well, we rewrite morality so we don't have to feel guilty. We blame others so that we don't have to feel guilty. We focus on what we think we've done right so we don't have to feel guilty. Or we focus on how we're better than others so we don't have to feel guilty. I understand that. I've done all of those things. But when we're converted, all of that is thrown out the window because we're actually, really purified from our guilt. I still remember when I came to Christ, I never, ever, ever had a better feeling when I laid my head on my pillow because I was no longer guilty. My conscience was clean for the first time, really, truly clean. I felt like I had taken a spiritual bath. Now, not everybody has that strong of a sensation. That's not necessarily an experience that everyone has. But you know something of it if you're in Christ. Because that's the power of the blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, Hebrews says, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So when someone's converted, they're purified. Purified from the stain of sin, from the shame of sin, from the guilt of sin. Isn't that awesome? Who, who doesn't want this? Well, then how do you get it? By obedience to the word of truth. Peter says, just look at the text again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Conversion happens by obeying the truth. Which is to say, repenting and believing in the gospel. Obedience to the truth here. Brothers and sisters, you need to see this. Please, you need to understand this carefully. Obedience to the truth here is not Christian obedience in general. It's not. Now, obedience is a really good thing. It's a crucial thing, in fact. You need to obey God. But you are not converted through Christian obedience. You are converted through repenting and believing in the gospel. That's obedient, obedience to the truth here. The gospel calls you. The gospel invites you. 
The gospel pleads with weary sinners like you, weighed down with guilt and shame and the stain of sin, to respond by repenting and believing. Now to repent is to turn from sin, it's to leave it behind. And to believe is to place your hope and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. It's what I ask anyone whenever we're about to baptize them, remember? Are you now trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life? And we just heard their baptismal testimony where they're saying they have left sin behind and they're following him. And then I ask this question, and what do they say? They say, yes, praise God. And then we plunge them underneath the water. And if there's a hair that's left up top as good Baptist, we make sure it goes all the way under. This is how we're converted through repentance and faith. This is how, humanly speaking, we're converted. Now, I say humanly speaking because, in truth, conversion is a miracle. It's a miracle wrought by the power of God. It's wrought through the word that goes out, this offer of the gospel, this offer of eternal life for all who trust in Jesus Christ. God is the one who causes us to turn from our sin and trust in him. Now, what happens when somebody's converted? Well, many things. Many things happen when someone's converted. If you can remember when you were converted, it may have been a confusing time. It may have been a hectic time. It may have been a strange time because God is is changing and rearranging so much of what's going on on the inside. Do you remember that? I'll tell you one thing that always happens. You begin to love other Christians. You do. You begin to love other Christians. You know why? Because that's the goal of your conversion. Having purified your soul's conversion... By your obedience to the truth, you're converted through repentance and faith for a sincere brotherly love. You're converted to love your brothers. For introduces a purpose statement. Therefore, love one another earnestly, Peter says, from a pure heart. Peter highlights love of the brethren as the goal of our conversion. Now, of course, if you're thinking theologically, this isn't the only goal of our conversion, but it's the one Peter chooses to highlight here. He chooses to highlight love for the brethren as the goal of your conversion. Notice, it's not love for all in general. It's love for brothers, brothers and sisters in specific. Now, of course, of course, you know, love for all, not just brothers and sisters, love for all is good and right. Jesus commands us to love even our enemies, but it's not what's commanded here. What's commanded here is love for the brethren. And that shouldn't surprise us because love for the brethren is the, listen to me, indispensable, essential characteristic of the Christian life. Love for the brethren is the indispensable and essential characteristic of the Christian life. If you don't have love for the brethren, you don't have the Christian life. I don't care what you say. And this shouldn't surprise you. Jesus speaking to his 12 disciples 
the church in its embryonic form, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty four and 35. 1 John, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. And this is love, and this is the love of God was, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and verses 20 through 21. Christianity is a communal faith. The Bible assumes, brothers and sisters, that every Christian is a member of a local church. You're like, here he goes talking about the church again. This guy is unbelievable. I can't not. I can't not because love of the brethren is the essential characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. And where do you love your brothers? <laughs> Here. In this church. This is where you love your brothers and sisters. But I do want to say to you, this is hard. <laughs> it is hard to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it was Dean Gagnon who told me this phrase. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) That is no criticism of you, Dean. Um, Why is it hard? All sorts of reasons. All sorts of reasons. We're different. So marriage just brings two different people together and fireworks can erupt over which way the toilet paper should roll, right? Church is made up of many different people. Why shouldn't we be surprised when fireworks erupt? We're different. And we are not only different. I think we can get on board with that. We are not just different, though. We are difficult. (laughs) You are not always easy to deal with. I am not always easy to deal with. You're not always humble. I am not always humble. You're not always responsive to correction when you are wrong. And I am not always responsive to correction when I am wrong. You are not always looking out for others, which Paul tells you to be doing. You are oftentimes looking out for yourself. So if we're going to do this, this love thing, we need to be filled with a heavenly power. 
We need a source of strength that is beyond us. We need an influence that's otherworldly, coursing through our veins if it were possible. In a word, we need the word. In a word, we need the word. And that's what Peter says next. Just look at the text. The Bible's incredible. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Why does Peter go off on a seeming excursion about the word of God here? Specifically, uh, the gospel word. So why, why does he go off on this seeming excursion? He was commanding us to love one another and then he talks about the word of God. Why does he do that? Because it further grounds this command to love the brethren. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Since is clearly acting as another ground to this command to love. And that makes total sense. We need the word of God to help us love one another. If this word is powerful enough to be the means that God uses to overcome our unbelief, to overcome our opposition to him, then this word is powerful enough to help us see through our differences and to help us see through our difficulties and actually walk in love towards one another. Do you recognize how amazing the word of God is? Peter does not want you to miss it. He highlights two aspects of it. It's power. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What is the agent that God uses to bring about the miracle of your conversion? His word. Specifically, his gospel word. That is power, brothers and sisters. The Bible says that in our lost state, we were blind, we were dead, we were slaves to sin, and in comes the gospel, in comes the word. And God miraculously uses that word. He uses that truth. He uses that spoken, read, heard word to give us life. He uses that word to free us from our slavery to sin, to open our eyes to our blind state and to give us faith. He uses the word to do that. That is power. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, Jeremiah 23. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it, Isaiah 55. As a pastor, I get a front row seat. I I get a front row seat to see the power of the word. I get to see a saint come and talk to me ready to divorce, reverse course, because he becomes convinced by the word of God that that would be disobedience to his Savior. I get to see a saint freed from guilt from what he had to do on the field of battle when he comes to understand from the word of God that the word of God has categories for soldiers under orders. I get to see a saint freed from guilt over her children's spiritual state through coming to understand that she can't, even by her most faithful efforts, save her children. Thus, her children's unsaved state does not mean she's failed as a mom. I get to see the power of the word work its way through the lives of people. It's incredible. How have you seen the power of the word in your life? How has it changed you? How has it shaped you? What thoughts were you absolutely convinced of before you came to Christ that were wrong? That the word of God has obliterated and set you right on? This word is powerful. And this word is eternal. It is living and abiding, 23 says. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Aren't you grateful for the eternality and unchanging nature of the word of God? We finally have something (laughs) to hold on to that doesn't change. Don't you just feel like the goalposts in scientific knowledge, in, in business, in life, in psychology, in the coronavirus and what you should do about it, everything's always changing. This never, ever changes. And it's so steadying. In a world where everything is changing and nothing is steady, we have this unchanging, ever true, always abiding, never ending, unstoppable, unquenchable, invincible word that will outlast us, our children, and even the world as we know it. Unbelievable. So, Peter says, in chapter 2, verse 1, so... Since you have this word, since this word has saved you, since this word is sanctifying you, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Put away, here's what he says, put away all that hinders love. That's what this is saying. This is a command to put away all that hinders love. Malice hinders love. Malice is ill will towards somebody. I hate that guy. (laughs) That's malice. And there's a lot softer forms of it. 
Deceit hinders love. Deceit is dishonesty. So lying, right? And it could be outright lying. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. Or it could be sophisticated and sly maneuvering lying like, oh, I didn't mean that. Now, maybe they didn't mean that, but but it can be a good cover for lying too. Oh, I didn't mean that. Or, oh, that's not how I remember that. Hypocrisy hinders love. Hypocrisy is acting one way in one setting and acting another way in another setting. Envy hinders love. Envy is longing for that which you don't have. Slander hinders love. Slander is sharing things with others that knocks somebody else down. Just a rung or two in the estimation of the other person. It could be true, it could be untrue, but it's shared with them and it doesn't need to be shared with them and it knocks that person down in the estimation of another. As Christians, we've got to lay all of that aside. We've got to lay it aside and what do we need to do? We need to long for the word. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love this verse. The word of God is likened to milk that a baby must be sustained by. When a baby is born, the baby is sustained by what? Milk. And the word is likened to that life sustaining flow. That's how significant it is. The word of God is likened to milk that a baby longs for. Is the baby like, nah, milk, I could take it, I could leave it. Mm. Some of you are like, that's how my baby had seemed like. It was hard to get that child to eat. No, the baby longs for the milk. The baby wants the milk. And the word is that we are to long for it. We are to be sustained by it. We are to long for it. And the word of God is presented as something we should long for at all times. Not just in our spiritual infancy in Christ. At all times. Whether newborns in Christ or mature in Christ, we are to be like newborns in that we are longing for the milk We are longing for the word. The word of God is presented as something we should long for at all times. And the word of God is presented as needed for us to reach final salvation. So that you, by it, you may grow up into salvation. That's, that's final eschatological salvation. Peter is saying if you don't abide in God's word, you will not reach this final salvation. Is that in conflict with salvation by grace through faith alone? No, it's the result of it. It's the fruit of it, which is why he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you are in fact in Christ. With all of this, with all of this in place, I just want to step down and I just want to ask us as a church, can we resolve this year and be clear this year that this God's word along with prayer in the context of the church 
is the means God uses to transform and shape you and me into those he would have us to be. Those who image his son and bring him glory. This is how he does it. He uses the word. And and so let's resolve to be much in it this year. Let's resolve to be much in this word. Spurgeon asks this. He says, why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? Because they neglect their closets and they do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Similarly, uh, J.C. Ryle says, I should soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them until harvest, as expect a believer to obtain much holiness who is not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sundays. Our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he cannot get on without them. So let me just give you a couple of specific encouragements as it relates to how you think about the Word of God and how you resolve to be in the Word of God in this upcoming year by His grace. Let me encourage you to get into the Word of God corporately. Let me encourage you to get into the Word of God corporately. So what we are doing now, Sunday morning, making this the ultimate and highest priority of your life on Sunday morning is to come to this gathering so that you might do many important things, but chief among which is to hear God's word preached. I would also encourage you in how you approach Sunday mornings. Do you approach Sunday mornings expectantly? Or are you just like, you know, alarm goes off, have to get to church, I'm at church, what's happening at church, I don't know, but I'm here. Are you, are you like, I want to hear from God, and I'm expecting to hear from God? And do you even prepare for hearing from God by the way you spend your Saturday night. I'm a terrible father. I don't let my kids stay out late on Saturday night because I want them to be awake on Sunday morning. So when do you go to bed on Saturday night? Your desire for the word of God impacts even things like that. Are you going to bed on Saturday night so that you can be awake and attentive to hear on Sunday morning? Think. She says, yes, that's great. Thank you. How do you approach home group? Do you want to hear from the word of God at home group? How do you approach informal fellowship at one another's houses when we're spending time with one another? Are you asking questions like, what did you think of that sermon? I thought it was a dud. Well, let's just think about the content, you know. Uh, What is God teaching you lately? Are you centering your informal fellowship around the word and, and, and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? 
want to encourage you to think about the corporate gathering as a means to get into the word. Read the word that's going to be preached as a family beforehand. I love it when I don't send out a passage and then I get an email from one of you on Friday or on Saturday. Hey, I didn't see the passage we're going through and I want to read it ahead of time. Can you send it to me? It's wonderful. Get into the Word of God through the corporate gathering. And I want to encourage you to get into the Word of God individually as well. Not just corporately. Yes, corporately, but also individually. And let me just be straightforward with you for a moment. I recognize that we're all on different places this morning, and maybe some of you aren't longing for the Word of God very much individually. Uh, That could be for many reasons. It could be, number one, for distraction. I feel as though, even though I don't want to be distracted, I am more and more and more distracted by all of the beeps and buzzings and emails and this and that, and I find my brain increasingly trained towards needing all sorts of different stimuli. So even if you're not, you know, watching, binge watching Netflix all the time, even if you're not doing that, you can find yourself just easily distracted. I want to encourage you to discipline yourself to put away the beeps and the buzzings and and not worry about how you feel and instead just get alone with God and say, I want to hear from your word and, and read. You may just be distracted. And since you're distracted, you don't desire the word. You can do something about that through just making some intentional effort consistently. You'll begin to feel less distracted and more focused. You can do something about that, okay? But it could also be more dark. It could just be sin. John Piper's dad told him when he gave him his Bible, he said, Son, either sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. That's a really good quote. Either sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Uh, Corey Tenboom, when she was in Ravensbrook, suffering terribly, she uh, had an experience where the Word of God became cold to her, and she recognized in time that it had become cold because she was being selfish and she was being bitter and boy can't you just identify with Corey being selfish and bitter she was in a concentration camp in Germany but she recognized that that was no excuse to to disobey God in terms of being generous with her fellow prisoners who who needed her her precious uh, medicine that she was wanting to save for her sister But she recognized that I'm just wanting to save it for her because I just want to be, I'm just being selfish. I don't want to share it. And her heart towards the other prisoners and their attitudes and their difficulties and the prison guards, she came to realize that the word of God has become cold to me because I have a bad attitude. And the moment she repented of that, the word of God immediately became sweet to her again. And she was leading others in worship, not in mere formalism, but with a heart of joy. So it may be sin that's keeping you from desiring God's word. And if it is, there's only one answer, and that's to repent of it. I also want you to be clear about your goal as you spend time in God's word in 2022. Let me just help you here. Your goal is actually not a devotional feeling. And your goal is not to have a good day, okay? Your greatest need, dear believer, is to know God. 
That's your greatest need. Not to have a devotional feeling of warmth toward him and not to have a good day as though, you know, 15 minutes here plus 15 minutes in prayer is going to equal the magic talisman that allows all the lights to turn green when I need to get to my work on time. But I didn't, so it's red, and that's because I didn't spend time in the Bible. No, your greatest need is to know God. And God's word is how you're going to increasingly know God. And knowing God is going to lead to being transformed by God, which is going to lead to loving your brothers and sisters like God would have you, which is the goal of your conversion, according to 1 Peter chapter 1. And then lastly, I just want to encourage you to be clear about a plan. Most things don't happen without a plan. So I would encourage you to actually have a plan to get into God's word individually. The other day I sent out some, an email to you just suggesting two different plans. You could make use of those. You could split those in half and, and, and read through the Bible in one year. You could read through it in two years. You could pick and choose. You could do whatever. Just formulate some plan. I don't care what it is. Formulate some plan. Tell that plan to a brother or sister in Christ. And then begin to execute on that plan. If you're not already doing that. That's my encouragement to you. And my hope, again, is that if Psalm 19 is read again this time next year, that you would have a more hearty and a deeper amen to it because of your effort and intentionality to get into God's word, both corporately and individually this year. By God's grace and for his glory and for the flourishing of the church, may it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your word, which gives life and which sustains life. Father, please help us to treasure it. Please help us to take steps to treasure it if we don't. Father, thank you that you save us and you sanctify us by it, through it, and through prayer, and through the ministry of the local church as these things are practiced in that context. We thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.